Hello and welcome to Tess Podagogy. This is the podcast which brings you everything that you need to know about teaching and learning, produced by the editors and writers at Tez. We interview leading academics, start debates about pedagogy, and take deep dives into some of the big issues facing classroom teachers today. This season, we will bring you a wealth of new guests who will all shine a light on their research and how it translates into the classroom. We will also dig into our archive to bring you the best episodes from past seasons. These have all been chosen because they continue to have relevance for teachers today. I'm Kate Parker, a features writer at Tez, and this week we're going back to 2017 when the Tez editor, John Severs, sat down with Linda Graham, a leading researcher into behaviour in the classroom. She's currently the director of the Centre for Inclusive Education and is a professor in the Faculty of Creative Industries, Education and Social Justice at the Queensland University of Technology. We know that behaviour is high on the government's priorities. In February, the Department for Education published new guidance on behaviour and asked the sector to respond through consultation. That consultation closes tomorrow. And this week, the new school's white paper too had pledges around behaviour. In the document, the DFE said that it would support schools to secure the fundamentals of behaviour, attendance and wellbeing for all, driving down incidents of poor behaviour and increased absence following the pandemic. But what does the research tell us about behaviour and how we should approach it in the classroom? In this episode, Graham and Severs delve into that research and discuss no excuses policies, productive discipline, and students being hard-baked to be disruptive by ineffective school behaviour management policies. They begin with no excuses policies, which have become more common in UK schools since 2017, when this podcast was first recorded. What I have been reading lately has been about this whole broken windows kind of um, perception that if you start with the little thing and and you clamp down hard on those, then everything else will work out much better. And you know, so that's the kind of view behind it. Um, and so I would say I think that's fairly common. But you know, how it's enacted in different schools uh, is, is how anything is enacted in different schools is always you know, up for debate. I believe it started in the US and has been imported to the UK and elsewhere. Is that problematic, do you think? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, in the US, for example, um, and, and that's the interesting thing, is that in the US, things, they started off uh, with no uh, uh, zero tolerance, you know, which is kind of the, the, big, the, the big daddy, if you like, of, um, of these kinds of responses to behaviour. And, but... <laughs> The US is a very different country and very different culturally to to the UK and to Australia. I mean, we don't have, and the UK doesn't have the kind of gun issues that they do in the US. So, I mean, it, it's really quite inappropriate for our countries to, I guess, take something from there, which has often been hatched um, in response to these you know, events like Columbine and, and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, and, and so I don't think people necessarily look at the DNA of um, of a policy and where it's come from and, and I guess the, the different cultural kind of context in which it was um, brought up in. You know, like, for example, um, the use of corporal punishment is, um, 
is acceptable and legal in many states in the US. It's not legal here in Australia. So there are certain things that, I guess, ideas and philosophies that end up trickling through, but that are, that are not consistent with your own culture. So that I think is, is kind of interesting. So when a school is deciding on a behaviour policy, you would not necessarily advocate just taking things that seem to work elsewhere and putting them into your own school or classroom? Well, yeah, that's right. And also what, what will be tolerated in one school um, by parents uh, will not be tolerated in another. Um, so, you know, it, it's really interesting. You can go into different, um, I guess, suburbs or, uh, and I'm thinking particularly here in Australia, but I know it's the same over in England where, you know, more affluent areas, you, you can have some schools that where parents subscribe to, you know, cadet type, um, uh, I guess, discipline within schools, but then there are also other very affluent schools where it's much more, I wouldn't say laissez-faire, but, um, but much more, I guess, democratic. Um, so there are different, and, and that's part of the thing with parent choice as well, which are policies that both our governments have followed, where you know, there are parents who will tolerate it, there are parents who won't tolerate it, and then there are parents who, I guess, are told what, um, what, what they can and can't have um, and who don't have much choice in the matter. Teachers, too, differ in how they view behaviour. Some, for example, might think that managing behaviour isn't part of their role as a teacher. Graham disagrees with this stance. Given some of the discourse that I've seen coming out of the UK and some of the things that have been said in that, you know, that behaviour is it gets in the way of teaching and all that sort of stuff, and I'm think, I sit there and think, yeah, hang on, um, that is a part of teaching. Um, and, and children do need to be taught um, and some children will need much more explicit guidance than others in, you know, because we, the reality is that we have, and particularly over where you guys are, you have children entering school at a very young age, um, you know, four years of age, and they're really not developmentally ready um, a lot of the time um, to be able to, and you will find that there have been studies that show that the younger children in a year group end up being the ones that get in the trouble most. They're the ones who end up with a diagnosis of ADHD. You know, there's all sorts of things that go on there. But there seems to be this expectation that they will come into school knowing what to do um, and that, that somehow that once they cross that threshold, that that's going to be, um, you know, either they should know what to do or they should do what they're told immediately. Um, but that's really not realistic um, because you're dealing with four-year-olds. And the problem is that if it doesn't happen at school and they don't, um, you know, they aren't, I suppose, supported and helped in order to for that to happen for them, and if there's not some sort of understanding that for different children that's going to occur at different rates, it's going to take you know, um, more intervention with some than it is others, all that sort of stuff. If those core, I guess, support and preparation doesn't happen in those early years, then and if it doesn't happen in the right way, then that can cause all sorts of problems later on. Next, they discuss research around hard baking. 
This is when a child is labelled as difficult or challenging, and therefore certain behaviours are expected from them. This, in turn, can lead to that child becoming institutionalised to be difficult. When recorded, Graham was in the fourth year of a six-year study following children throughout primary school in Australia. Here she explains. In other research, I have worked with the kids who end up outside school, you know, like in Prus and, and things like that. And what I found really disturbing was that they all talked about, because we, you know, we did interviews with them that were had retrospective questions, and so it was kind of like longitudinal backwards, if you like. Mm. Um, we were very interested uh, in their mainstream school experiences, um, how they thought um, they ended up where they were. And a lot of them, it was really interesting, a lot of them took responsibility. Um, you know, they they had fully internalised the there is something wrong with me um, kind of thing. Um, they were pretty broken uh, by the time they got to, you know, these behaviour schools. These kids were on average 13 and a half years of age, but we had boys from nine to, you know, 16. Um, and what really worried me was that when we asked them, you know, when did you start disliking school? When did they start having problems in school? The majority of them out of the 33 that we worked with said uh, kindy to year two. Okay. So these kids had, yeah. And and what what was a really common story between all of them was that they had come into school um, re- not ready, basically, for the demands of school. Um, a lot of them were from disadvantaged backgrounds, all that sort of stuff. And where they were getting in trouble um, were was for things that I would argue that is really not their fault. So things like not following instructions or not doing their work. Now, I know probably a lot of teachers would disagree with me on that, but when you have a look at the other data that we collected about these kids, then you, it's, the penny starts to drop, which is the majority of them had huge issues with language. So if you have receptive language issues, not following instructions is, is you know, that's, that's the term that's used, but it's actually they don't understand the instructions that they've been given mm. and they end up getting in trouble for stuff like that. Or so the majority of them also had um, ADHD, for example. Well, not following instructions is a very common uh, kind of issue with kids with ADHD and that's because they hear the first bit and maybe the last bit and they don't hear the bit in the middle and all that sort of stuff. So the, And then the other part was that they... Um, they got in trouble for not doing their work. I mean, and a lot of what they talked about was classic task avoidance. And when you ask them why, it's because I can't do it. You know, so, and that's not surprising. We had 15-year-olds who couldn't breathe. Well, one boy said to us um, when we asked, uh, you know, you've been in the behaviour school for three years now. Do you think it's done anything for you? He was like, well, yeah, because... I can now read street signs and I'm hoping to become a truck driver one day. Oh, wow. So, yeah. I mean, so that's the thing. You know, these kids are getting into huge trouble at school. Often, you know, and what was happening with these ones, and this is where I, I get quite angry, really, because, you know, we talk, we have all these 
these kind of conversations about behaviour, and it, they're all very superficial. There are there are things that we do within schools that actually really contribute to the problems that these kids are having. They don't receive support early enough. And in the project that I'm doing at the moment, honestly, I want to put my head down and cry sometimes. There is so little connection between what's going on with the kid, whether the teacher realises that there's stuff going on with that kid. And I'm talking about, you know, whether there might be a language disorder present, right? Mm. And then whether the child receives support and if they do, whether that support is even remotely connected to what that issue might be. So what's the alternative? How can we stop this from happening? Graham doesn't advocate for no boundaries at all, but for productive and supportive discipline. I think a lot of people would love to paint me as someone who doesn't believe in discipline and, you know, come by and, and lets everybody wave crystals and, no, I'm not like that at all. <laughs> I don't really like the word discipline and the reason that I don't really like it is because, you know, the way in which people think that that means something bad, mm. um, you know, but discipline can be positive um, and productive. Um, so productive discipline is actually, you know, making sure and supporting that child to be to be able to follow the rules, to and teaching them what those rules are, what what is often happening is there will be this kind of, mm, okay, the child's not reading um, at the same level as the rest of the class. They're, you know, sort of coasting somewhere down the bottom. Oh, what support programs do we have? And the support program could be social skills, like a social skills program, or there will be the perception that the child has a behaviour issue and so we'll put them on a behaviour card. Meanwhile, actually the child might have a language disorder and that's what our daughter, our data is pointing at. So my kind of, you know, what we're trying to piece together in this massive project is, okay, so what's the alignment between what we think is going on with the child, what the teachers think is going on with the child and what support they do and don't receive and so far the picture is looking pretty bad. We know that low level disruptive behaviour is a big issue in the classroom. In 2014, an Ofsted report found that persistent low level disruption seriously impacts learning and increases stress among teachers. When it comes to productive and supportive discipline tackling that then, what does Graham think? What do they mean by low-level disruption? Um, because in some class, some of the classrooms that we're in, there'd be no kids left in the class. So you know, good luck with that one. But, um, but it's, no, I actually don't think um, I don't think that that is helpful. Because how is that child going to how is that child going to learn? But also, um, one of my objections to I think people miss the complexity um, of what's going on as well. So sometimes those arguments can be popular, and this is one of the things that I really detest about the no excuses kind of um, mantra, or at least uh, the version of it that I've been seeing coming out of the UK. Um, 
and and one of the the things that I object to in that is um, the I guess the line that no excuses is necessary so that all teachers can teach. So um, there's been an argument made um, that not every teacher can be engaging, not every teacher can be, you know, good at building relationships and da 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 da. So we have to have no excuses behaviour so that no that all teachers can teach. And I'm thinking, hang on. So we need no excuses for students so that we can have excuses for teachers. Not going to be popular for saying that, but you know what? I don't care. But so the thing is that in the research that we're doing, the teacher is actually a variable in disruptive behaviour. And I don't think that that gets talked about in this conversation um, or this, this debate enough. And there seems to me... On certainly on some sides of the debate, um, it's almost like they, they want to evacuate the teacher from uh, any part and role and responsibility other than, well, you know, the teacher is the person who sets the, the rules and then it is up to the child to follow them. Um, and those rules uh, can be as draconian as we like because of the whole broken windows policy and all that sort of stuff. But that is forgetting that... Teaching is actually, you know, it's interactional. There is, you know, so there is cause and effect between, you know, children and, you know, other children, and then there is children and the teacher. So one of the things that we're doing when we're observing in classrooms is we're looking at all of those different interactions. And when teachers themselves are, um, I guess, um, not bringing their A game, that creates huge problems, and it's the kids who get in trouble for it. And that's what I don't like about the no excuses debate, and what I don't like about the discourse of the currently stands, or about you know suggestions that even low level disruption, those kids need to be taken out of the classroom. Because my question would be, yeah, hang on, where's that low level disruption actually coming from? Because in the observations that we do, when we see teachers who don't know what they're doing. And, and by that, I could mean that they don't know the curriculum well. Um, they are very, I guess, unproductive. So one of the things that we code for is productivity in terms of how much time children are, are spending sitting around and waiting for materials, waiting for the teacher to, you know, fix something uh, to do with the, you know, the, the smart board or the whiteboard or whatever it is. You know, that that has implications. Other things that are really interesting is micromanaging. So one of the other other aspects of no excuses that concerns me is that if you spend your time micromanaging behavior and, you know, and, and focusing on that all the time, well, actually that's all you end up focusing on. But it also causes problems because while you're focusing on the behavior of some, then it creates problems elsewhere. So it's it's far more complex than a lot of these kind of trite, um, just do this or just do that um, type situation. Looking at school's behaviour policy, Graham is firm that no excuses doesn't work. However, it's not that she thinks pupils should be able to do whatever they want, but that instead there should be a structured, supportive route to better behaviour.
I do believe in boundaries, but I do think that those boundaries need to be flexible and I think they need to be appropriate. Sometimes I get the sense that people are imposing what they wish for themselves um, or, you know, there, there can be this kind of <laughs> wowzer um, type uh, sort of view out there in the world that, you know, you've got to be squeaky clean all the time and always do what you're told and always be perfect. And I actually don't subscribe to that view because I think there are value, there is value in making mistakes. And and also I think that there's value in pushing boundaries. I mean, I would never have achieved what I have in my life if I uh, didn't push boundaries, if I didn't decide that, you know, what the hell, um, I can do what I want or I can, you know, I can achieve something that no one else in my family has achieved or that a lot of people don't think is, um, you know, um, the kind of route for a woman uh, to follow. So I think boundary teaching our kids to be, I guess, risk takers within reason um, is is something that's worthwhile. I don't want my kids to be someone who always does what they are told. I want them to have the ability to choose. I think that's different. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Tez Podagogy. Please join us again next week.